Welcome to the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween, Paul. How are you doing? (laughs) Doing good. I think we're pretty spooky. I think we're ready to go. Yeah, I hope no one's too scared out there of our our voices. (laughs) I don't think I could do that if I tried. (laughs) No, we're not Vincent Price. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Well, we had not necessarily planned on a special Halloween episode, but Paul wrote to me a few weeks ago and said, hey, what do you think? We both... We're both looking at reading a certain book, and why don't we make it a Halloween special? And the book, as you probably know if you've looked at the title of the episode, is Shirley Jackson's Hangs a Man, which uh, Paul had put on your uh, your fall reading list. Isn't that, that right in that fall right. reading episode? Exactly. I think that's what kind of kicked off our idea mm-hmm. to, to maybe try it. Yeah, it seems like Shirley Jackson... As I've gone back and listened to our podcasts, which for some reason, they don't stick in my head as well as I thought they did. I'll listen to them and I'm like, oh, I didn't remember us talking about that. But we talk about Shirley Jackson kind of kind of with some frequency. She, yeah. She's on our Great Openings podcast for the for um, We've Always Lived in the Castle, which I chose. Uh, you chose Hangs a Man. You've talked about... Haunting uh, of Hill House. Yeah, The Haunting of Hill House. I don't mm-hmm. know why that couldn't come to mind. <laughs> so, so yeah, her, she she and Brandon Sanderson are kind of like our unofficial mascots, which I don't think either of us would have, uh, would have no. predicted. <laughs> I know. It's been really fascinating to watch how that's kind of developed. And, yeah, I'm the same way. I didn't know that she would necessarily come up as often as she had. And one thing, too. So I didn't realize two things. First... This is the perfect fall book because you don't even. It, we're doing it for our Halloween special because, I mean, you, you've got this edition right mm-hmm. with this yep. this kind of Penguin Classics black um, edition with that creepy cover where this girl has uh, like blood spatters as she's writing "Dear Dad" mm-hmm. uh, and all of that. Uh, that's kind of creepy, but this could easily be our Thanksgiving special. It's true. <laughs> this Thanksgiving takes place in this book. And I thought that was kind of cool. So yeah, listeners, if you haven't read it yet, you, you're not out of time. You can read this all winter, you know, <laughs> all yeah. through that. No, um, it's seasonal, but it's not specific. I think, yeah, like mm-hmm. you said, there's plenty of time if somebody wanted to jump in. Yeah, it fits with your academic um, credentials that you, you were talking about with fall reading. Because, uh, again, I didn't know much about this book at all when when you talked about it. And I'd, I'd probably read the back. But did you realize... That in that episode, you and I put one of these on, but you put two books that are somewhat evocative, and and I think deliberately and specifically of Bennington College. No, I mean I think I had had the <laughs> academic thing in mind, but yeah, but Bennington in particular, I did not have that on my radar <laughs> until we started looking at them. That's really weird. So this one and Donna Tartt's um, Secret History, and. Did you realize that they are both allegedly, now this is where it might be more just uh, reporting uh, afterwards, allegedly based on the 1946 disappearance of a young uh, Bennington College student? You know, I did not. And I kind of, doing some reading about this one, I saw that come up. I didn't know that Donna Tartt's book was also involved with that, potentially. Potentially. I um, I read it as I was doing research for this book. Mm-hmm. I read, you know, other books that are based on the disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon, Donna Tartt's A Secret History. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay. That's and again, strange. I don't know, because even even Shirley Jackson, which it's on the back of our book, you know, uh, Chilling and Sus- Suspenseful, 
Hangsman is loosely based on the real-life disappearance of a Bennington College sophomore in 1946. But Ruth Franklin, apparently, again, I haven't read this yet, but it's on it's on Wikipedia, so, you know. <laughs> but in her, in her biography of Shirley Jackson, which came out a few years ago, uh, she suggests that she hasn't found any evidence that this is actually based on on the disappearance of the Bennington student. Yeah, exactly. I was going to mention that too. I actually ended up finding that Ruth Franklin biography on the library shelf for sale for like two bucks a month or two ago. I know I was thrilled and I picked it up. And so I have not yet read it, but I was flipping through it for this, for this episode and kind of just reading some snippets. And exactly. That's what I was going to bring up too, is it sure doesn't sound to me like it was based on it, or at least there's not much evidence, but it adds an interesting wrinkle if nothing else. Yeah, it's tough to think that it might not have been somewhat in Shirley Jackson's head. That that mm-hmm. event seems to have been pretty significant. And it's th- this book came out in 1951 mm-hmm. and while Shirley Jackson is at Bennington. Bennington. She was at Bennington when Paula Jean Weldon disappeared. It was a whole community that got together to try to, um, you know, go and do search parties and all of that. So if it's based on it, it's very, I wouldn't say based on it, but she may have had some like feelings or some, some, some thoughts, especially as, as the girl in this one's kind of wandering. I know that, you know, just, just there in the back of her mind. So yeah. Yeah. Way to go, Paul. You, you had a very specific thing in mind and I know you you don't know it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we talked about those accidental paths that you end up taking with your reading, or sometimes it's even with your reading that you plan to do. And this definitely turned out to be one of them where there's some connections you weren't even aware of. (laughs) I thought that was, that was oddly specific. I know it's pretty cool, Uh, but, but pretty darn cool. So, so yeah, this is Shirley Jackson's second novel. Came out in 1951. This is after the lottery has already made her, you know, famous or at least notorious uh, mm-hmm. among some. It was, it was published in the New Yorker, I think, in 1946. I didn't write that down uh, specifically here, but anyway, a few years before this. So she's already, you know, even though she's per- fairly young in her literary career, she's made her big splash with that short story and mm-hmm. causing a bunch of letters to the editor to come in. And clearly she's interested in communities and power struggles and what this does just to our psychology and to our identity as people, even on the most intimate levels uh, amongst, you know, families and, and husbands and wives, or in this case, uh, daughters and, and parents and others. And just doing it in a kind of chilling way. I mean, this isn't, these are so psychologically strange, but realistic mm-hmm. that it's, it's kind of somewhat terrifying. But anyway, yeah. that, oh. just, this is a little, a little introduction to the book there from that perspective. But mm-hmm. uh, maybe I guess the last thing before I just, we, we just blow this open. Uh, listeners, many of you may not have read Hangs a Man and, you can still listen to this episode, I think, for at least a while. We probably will get into spoilers later on. We'll try to keep them somewhat vague still, but I don't know if we'll be able to do that. I, I have questions for Paul, and I, I want to talk to him about that. And I imagine some of you might as well, because it seems to be, as I'm looking around online, many people, when they finish this book, go looking for answers yeah. And I want to see where what we come up with. And so we will we will announce that later on when we get into spoilers. 
but I'm not sure this is a book that's much... I don't know if there's a good way to spoil this book because it's much more about character and mm-hmm. and all of that than about any particular plot event though there are plot events and so just beware you know we'll, yeah. we'll be mindful of it and and then also maybe a little bit of a trigger warning for folks um this might be your first spoiler but i do want to make it explicit here there is a sexual assault that happens early early in this book that we'll probably at least just touch on and i don't know if we'll read certain passages around it but it's definitely uh, there and again handled in one of these psychologically acute ways that I want listeners to be aware that we will some of that might come up in this episode though we'll again hopefully hopefully be respectful and uh, it, this is this is one where we probably should have asked women readers to help us out Paul but nevertheless yeah. here we are <laughs> right now we will do our best and I'm glad you mentioned it and yeah like you said we'll we'll try to be really careful because yeah that part it is definitely disturbing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, all right. Where do you want to start, Paul, in our non-spoiler section? I mean, this. Yeah. Is... I mean, I think one place I could start is just saying I did not know, like you, I did not know what to expect from this book. And to be honest, I could probably say that that feeling lasted until the last page, and, <laughs> yeah. and in a good way. I mean, I was it was very unsettling, and I was I felt wrong-footed almost entirely through the whole thing as I was reading. I just had no idea what to expect, which I actually, I really enjoyed. I was mm-hmm. doing a little research before this and I came across a slate review by a guy named Dan Coys. And he, he said kind of something that I thought was very accurate. It's, it's the kind of book that sends you searching immediately for other people's ideas of what it is you've just read. I spent much of the novel expecting something gruesome to happen at every turn, the way it would in a contemporary Gothic. It took me a long time to accept the book for what it was and settle into its peculiar rhythms, following poor Natalie Waite as she comes completely unhinged in her proper Northeastern College for Women. Only now, having finished the book, do I begin to feel as though I understand what kind of novel I'm reading. And even so, I wouldn't at all be surprised to find out I'm completely wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was really good. It kind of summed up a lot of what I felt. It's just, I don't know what I was expecting, but it certainly wasn't what I expected. Mm-hmm. And, and like I, like he said, even at the end, you know, I was kind of like just sitting there trying to wrap my mind around everything I'd read and figure it out. And I, I don't always go searching for what other people think because I don't necessarily want to dilute my own ideas or I want to sometimes give it some time to percolate. Mm-hmm. But, but this was one where I was like, wait a minute. And so I did do a fair amount of reading, just trying to figure out what I had read, what other people's interpretations were. So yeah, I thought that was pretty fascinating. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, that, that that's, we may both have completely different ideas today. I'm very curious about that and the way some of the things happen in here or, or don't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of tough to know. Um, here's a quick question for you. And then maybe we should give listeners who have not read it some kind of ideas to what the book is ostensibly about mm-hmm. um without looking is this book in first person or third person to you mm, that's a good question uh, without looking it is in third person yeah i every but i time, had to think about it and i knew it was in third person I, I thought of this question kind of early on 
because every time I sat down to read the book, I'd be like, wait, this is in third person. Mm-hmm. Wait, this is in third person. Cause it feels so very much like you're in the head of the protagonist who is 17 year old Natalie Waite. Um, at the beginning, she's at home with her parents and her little brother and is preparing to go to college for her first term at kind of this prestigious girls college. Uh, again, based somewhat on Bennington or at least, well, yeah, I think, I think it's pretty clearly based on on that. And she's preparing to leave and we get into their home and dad is, you know, kind of, uh, uh, an emotional and intellectual bully Mm -hmm. to, uh, Natalie and to her mom. He's completely disrespectful of her mom and, her mom for her part has taken Natalie to be her sounding board for all of her criticisms about their, her father mm-hmm. and just kind of goes off when they're together and doesn't seem to have the courage to say these things to her father, understandably. Uh, but that's where she can get them all out is with her daughter. And there's such an interesting dynamic there. Then we go to Bennington itself or to the to the college for i don't know another well for the rest of the book but but for quite a little bit Mm -hmm. and then at the end we leave everything and go on this little road trip into the forest in a way yeah so that's that's kind of how the the book develops and it's so much about natalie and her ideas about herself and and these relationships and the people that she meets or at least that she has in her head because early on you also realize she has conversations in her head mm-hmm. with other people. And she knows it. Like in the beginning, it's a detective who's always interrogating her for yeah. criminal behavior. And, and she's on the spot. But she's she's the tough criminal who won't crack and all that. And it's such an interesting you know, fantasy that she has for, for her identity that it just, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's so interesting. It is. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, what you said right there, that made a huge impression on me early on is the combination of her interior life and the way she's kind of coping with this difficult situation with some rough relationships going on in her family, you know, so she she goes off into these imaginative spaces, like you said, where she's being interrogated or other things. So that's one of the things that I thought was a strength early on that really fascinated me. And then another thing is just the relationships that she has with her family are so realistic, so well drawn out. Um, there's this one section where she's talking about her mom that I thought was just stunningly well done. And it's one of the things which Natalie most disliked about her mother was Mrs. Waite's invariable trick of putting serious statements into language that Natalie classified as cute. Mrs. Waite, too long accustomed to seeing her most heartfelt emotions exposed, discussed, and ignored, had long since fallen into protecting herself by stating them as jokes with an air of girlish whimsy, which irritated both Natalie and Mr. Waite, as no flat statement of hatred could have. Because of this, Natalie, who had sometimes thought of running to her mother with a voluntary expression of affection, said briefly, you'll find something to do. So it's just little things like that where mm-hmm. just, man, it's so spot on with like the way real relationships work. There's these little things that irritate you. It's not really a fault of, of the mother. It's just a way she's coping with her stuff and just you know, rubbing rough edges against each other. I don't know, just there's a lot of examples of that. And I thought that was really well done too. Yeah, she's so good at portraying these 
bizarre behaviors that are very familiar. Yeah. But in a way, it, it is unsettling. It, and I don't mean that. I don't mean that in, in a creepy way. I mean, I don't ever quite know what's going on. But when you when you look back on it, you're like, man, that, that's how these things play out sometimes mm-hmm. in real life. And and she's so good at doing that. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I. I I don't know exactly how to how to get into this, Paul. This is this is quite the uh, quite the book, and I'm worried we're going to jump into spoilers just by talking about even the first few pages. <laughs> I know it is. It's I, I will say you did a good job. It's it's laid out basically into three separate sections in my mind. You know, it's definitely pre college, middle of college, and then that weird little escapade at the end. And I think. For me, one of the things that I found very unsettling was every time you would start to try to figure or you would begin to think, okay, that's what kind of book this is. Like during the first section, okay, there's this family drama playing out. I'm starting to get a read on some of these relationships. And then Jackson uproots you Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you're at Bennington. And I wouldn't say the tone changes completely, but it, I mean, it does in a lot of ways where all of a sudden now you're kind of like, it's almost like you're reading another book. There's still some connections for sure. But I don't know if you felt that way, but I almost felt like all three were almost like separate books in a way with some strong connections between them, but it, it added to that whole feeling of just uneasiness and feeling unsettled as you're reading. Yes, for sure. And, and some of the through lines, I would say if we're looking for them would be her relationship with her father. Mm -hmm. I think that is a central aspect of all of this as well as something that comes up on the first page. Why don't we look at this first little passage? This is how Jackson introduces our characters. These are the things that I think really keep on coming up, even as even as the places shift and the tones shift. If you don't mind, I'll just start at the beginning. Yeah, that's great. Mr. Arnold Waite, husband, parent, man of his word, invariably leaned back in his chair after his second cup of breakfast coffee and looked with some disbelief at his wife and two children. I mean, that's this guy in a nutshell. As you get through the book, it's like, oh my gosh, this is this is such a, a jerk. You know, invariably, this is every day. You know, this is their life. This is their tech. This is their what they what they breathe. You know, is this particular situation? Him being befuddled by his family. Right now, we don't quite know, but it's he's look he's condescending. You know, he's looking mm-hmm. down on them. His chair was situated so that when he put his head back. The sunlight, winter or summer, touched his unfaded hair with an air at once angelic and indifferent. Indifferent because, like himself, it found belief not an essential factor to its continued existence. I think that's a central central phrase mm-hmm. there, too. The belief in existence. I, I, there's something there. When Mr. Waite turned his head to regard his wife and children, the sunlight moved with him broken into patterns on the table and the floor. Your God, he customarily remarked to Mrs. Waite down the length of the breakfast table, has seen fit to give us a glorious day, or your God has seen fit to give us rain, or snow, or has seen fit to visit us with thunderstorms. This ritual arose from an ill-advised remark made by Mrs. Waite when her daughter was three. Small Natalie had asked her mother what God was, and Mrs. Waite had replied that God made the world, the people in it, and the weather. Mr. Waite did not tend to let such remarks be forgotten. God, Mr. Waite said this morning, and laughed. I am God, he added. 
Natalie was three years old when that happened. She's 17. So for the last 14 years, <laughs> this has been what this family goes through every morning, just right. persistent belittling mm-hmm. and building up of himself, this Arnold weight as, as the, the dad who doesn't care if the others believe in his existence or not. He yeah. is. Ugh. Now, if you... I've got one more thing there then. So I talked about, I pointed out a few of these things about existence and Mr. Waite, but I think it's important that in the next, next paragraph, we shift to Natalie and to her question of existence. It says, Natalie Waite, who was 17 years old, but who felt that she had been truly conscious only since she was about 15, lived in an odd corner of a world of sound and sight past the daily voices of her father and mother, and their incomprehensible actions. So that's her, we're realizing now, she lives in a different world, a different kind Mm -hmm. of reality in a way. For the past two years, since in fact she had turned around suddenly one bright morning and seen from the corner of her eye a person called Natalie, existing, charted inescapably located on a spot of ground, favored with scents and feet and a bright red sweater and most obscurely alive, she had lived completely by herself, allowing not even her father to access the farther places of her mind. She visited strange countries, and the voices of their inhabitants were constantly in her ear. When her father spoke, he was accompanied by a sound of distant laughter, unheard probably by anyone except his daughter. I, oh, so good. I, there's and there I, and so much going on. I, I love that opening again. Great openings. Of, uh, oh yeah, just this could like have been in there for it. sure. Mm-hmm in good hands for sure. But I think that there's so much that's going on here that becomes relevant through the rest of the story, even when it seems to stray away from it again, her father yeah, and that question of her own existence and her own confusion almost at this person named Natalie, who mm-hmm. seems to exist in this world that she prefers not to believe in. Yeah. And, and it starts, you know, from a very young age. Well, and the whole idea of, there's that interiority and kind of your own inner world. And then also dealing with the outside world. That's another thing kind of connected to what you just said, where that plays out here within the family plays out when she gets to the college as well. Alienation, you know, trying to figure out where you belong and kind of rejecting others. Like I don't need them, but then you do and, and building these stories that you tell yourself to kind of cope with the different hardships that come along and loneliness and all those different things. Yeah. It's, Oh man, she is so good at that stuff. Yeah. Well, maybe now is just a really a good time for us to stop for just one second to give some listener feedback because I think it's relevant to our conversation here. Uh, this is from our good friend Ben O'Connell. Paul got a little bit of a of a hey Paul, come on man, you didn't talk up the haunting yeah. of Hill House quite a t- enough. A, t- a, t- a tongue lashing, I would go so far as to say <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. <laughs> no. And um, and I said, well, Ben, let us know your thoughts. You know, give us a little bit more. I because I wasn't sure what he expected, not what he expected, but what he would have said had he been part of our conversation to mm-hmm. advance. You know, the the reasons Haunting of Hill House is a, is a great book, which I think you you did, but he just um, said there's a little bit more here that he was he was expecting. Mm-hmm. And um, so he says here, Jackson packs a lot into the Haunting of Hill House. For such a slim book. Eleanor, for example, is a world-class feat of character development, and Jackson's portrayals of human sexuality and mental health 
are subtle and complex to degrees that still read true over 60 years later. The Haunting of Hill House also manages to be terrifying and hilarious. It's not unusual for writers and filmmakers to play fear and humor off one another as they ratchet up and release tension, but I think the humor in The Haunting of Hill House sometimes gets overlooked in conversations about books. That's 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 us, Paul. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is deep belly laugh out loud funny. It would be in my list of 10 favorite comic novels should I draft such a thing, maybe even top five. So I thought that was a really good comment. I, I still have not read The Haunting of, of, of Hill House, so I need yeah. to, to to get in on that. Um, sorry, Ben, you probably are. I shouldn't have said that, should I? <laughs> yeah, I know. But, but I, I do want to be able to, to, to drop listener feedback and such. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I that's thought, great. Oh, I think that what he says at the beginning with the the packing a lot and portrayals of human sexuality and mental health, subtle and complex. I mean, this is hangs a man too. Oh yeah. And still feels real and maybe even um, advanced 60 years later. I think so too. 70 years later, actually for this book. Um, And, and, and funny. I don't know if, again, I don't, I don't know how funny, but that first part with Mr. Waite is both uh, awful, but also really well done in a way that makes him look ridiculous and, and funny. Does he remind you at all, or, or does that dynamic remind you a little bit of, of Pride and Prejudice with Mr. Bennett, Mrs. Yes. Bennett, and, and Elizabeth? Like that, it's not a direct correlation, but I thought there was some similarities there for sure, where the dad is pretty pompous and overbearing. The mother, you know, could be called a little bit of a flibberty gibbet, but she also has some pretty good intentions at mind. And then the daughter is kind of observing all of it, and she's somewhat removed, but still trying to exist in that world. I don't know. I thought that there was some connections there. Yeah. And maybe what we get more in hangs a man is the mother having those private conversations where she doesn't even turn around to see if it's Natalie in the room. She just knows it is. Mm Because why would the father come into that room or the son for that matter? He's being brought up to be the same way. Um, And she just goes off, you know, that those kinds of, that that abuse becomes much more apparent in this than in Pride and Prejudice. But yeah, yeah that relationship, that that intelligent, you know, magnanimous, understanding, empathetic, uh, and understands his own foibles. You know, I think the the Arnold, that Mister Waite in this book is is such a, an interesting and complex and, and well developed character because he keeps on asserting that he understands his own weaknesses and that he's not good. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a totally a rhetorical device to to make himself and those around him feel better and excuse his his brutality because he's certainly not going to change it. Right. No, exactly. Those sections where he's kind of basically grading some reports that she's done. She's she's written up a sketch about him for I think it's for school, and he's going through and exactly what you said. He'll, he's very critical of all of the grammar and different things, but he'll also point out, you know you didn't mention my other fault, which is blah, 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 you know, and (laughs) he says it, but like you said, there's, there's definitely a device to it. It's not like he's just being transparent and honest. It's, he's very manipulative. And yet it's a, it's a fascinating uh, relationship between those two, because even when she's away at school, he'll write her these letters and she'll write back and you can tell there's a closeness there, but it's also, there's a lot of weird underlying things going on within that relationship that makes it again, very realistic and, and really well done. There's a lot of yearning on her part to please him mm-hmm. and to be the kind of person that he wants her to be. But 
it's also pretty clear every time she feels like she might be approaching something like that, he bats her away. Like, I sent you to college not to get an education, but, you know, mm-hmm. all, all of these things. Or I don't care if you're feeling down. In fact, I depend upon it. You know, your despair. Yeah. Um, I don't want it to last forever, but this is a part of life. And I've done this on purpose as I've designed you. I mean, there's this godlike um, person there still. And he talks a few times about, you know, his existence, her, her existence is dependent upon his. And so she better continue to believe in him uh, because he made her and continues to make her. I mean, it's, it's subtle. It doesn't, you have to read it. And, and I'm sure I missed a bunch of things like that, but you could easily just read through that chapter and miss those little one liners uh, before you, you know, and just, Oh, this is a weird relationship, but there's some just really awful things going on there. There's not anything explicitly um, sexual, but she does, they, they, they do have that almost flirtiness mm-hmm. at times in their letters. And when he's calling her like a, a, you know, I don't think he uses the word damsel in distress and she, but she he says something like that. And she writes back, you know, my good sir knight, mm-hmm. you know, rescue me, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's yeah. got a little creepiness to it for sure. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, and that's just where it's just a little injection of this stuff for, from Shirley Jackson that I think uh, makes it unsettling because you almost expect there to be more than if it's there, let's develop it fully and really kind of dig into that. And she doesn't quite do that. She's letting it be part of the miasma of this girl's being yeah. as many other things are. I mean, we're focusing on the father, but her friends at school, her mother, her brother, she's befuddled by her brother's existence. I love that part when she gets home and she's like, Oh, they're, there he is in the room, you know. It's like when you have I a know. baby, and all of a sudden there's a baby in the room. And you're like, whoa, what? you know. I just remember that weird, here? weird, weird moment of they're suddenly there. You know, mm-hmm. there's suddenly one more person in the room, and uh, you have to account for and and how suddenly, how shocking that can be. She seems to have that just with her brother being around. She doesn't think about him ever. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff. Let's see uh, other things you want to bring up before maybe we do start to touch on. Uh, maybe being a little more explicit with spoilers and not so worried about what we bring up. Yeah. I mean, I think we've done a good job so far, I guess just kind of reiterating that whole point of, I like to see how her view of things kind of shifts over the course of the novel. And so much of it is her pulling in and then reaching out, seeing how things are going, testing if she gets hurt or scared or something weird happens, she'll pull back into that interiority and just kind of that that testing and back and forth does such a good job of capturing adolescence. Mm-hmm. There's a, a section where she has just gone to the college and it talks about how, I don't have it right in front of me, but the first few days it was this foreign, strange place. And then by, you know, week two or, or something like that, she's confidently striding around and she knows where all the different buildings are. And so she's starting to come into her own. And so it's like that back and forth, just having teenagers myself and having remembered how that adolescent time feels there's so much bluffing that's going on just because you don't know what else to do. And so you have kind of this false confidence going on, but it's very fragile and it doesn't take much to kind of shatter that. And I think that was pretty fascinating too. Just watching that play out in real time over the course of this book was really well done too. Yeah, I agree. Before we go into spoilers, let me leave with a passage that I think will still show that this is a bit of a Halloween book, even though this particular passage takes place sometime soon after Thanksgiving. Um, 
this is toward the end, but I'm not, I don't think anything I'm going to read is a spoiler. It's more of an atmosphere thing. But this is uh, Natalie just walking along in the forest. She says, or, well, she doesn't. So there we go. She's not saying this. This is the third person narrator. <laughs> the trees were waiting in the darkness ahead, quite expectant. A tree is not a human thing with its feet in the ground and its back hard against the sky. It cannot tolerate the small human tenderness moving beneath and, not obeying the whims of movable creatures, can hardly have more pity for a Natalie than for a field mouse or a pheasant, moving with private pride but falling easily. Beneath the trees, it was not dark as a room is dark when the lights are put out, the artificial darkness which comes when an artificial light is gone. It was the deep, natural darkness which comes with a forsaking of natural light. Natalie's feet went without sound on the path. Made by whom? For what purpose? For whose feet? She could not lift her head from contemplation of her own feet on the path, although she knew surely that the tree bent over her, trying, perhaps, to touch her hair. Her feet felt the path, and she knew that there was moss there, or something frightfully soft that made no sound. Anyway, I thought that was a little bit of a creepy passage that shows that, you know, this is still a Halloween episode. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great one. And there's definitely passages like that sprinkled through. Just like we talked about with The Haunting of Hill House, she's so good when she does decide. I don't know if it's nature writing specifically. I don't know if you'd call it that. But when she brings in those natural mm-hmm. elements and kind of sometimes the indifference of the outside world or even maybe not indifference, but maybe there's a little bit of malevolence to it. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the malevolent really. indifference in a way in this particular case mm-hmm. uh, where she is talking about they don't even care about her, but there's therefore something even darker. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like she's just just a being there. All right. Well, let's get into spoilers. Let's try to make some things a little bit more explicit here. Um, okay. What do you think is the what do you think is going on in this story? How much does the sexual assault play a role that happens like on page, I don't know, 50 out of 218 of this edition. Yeah. You know, what, what exactly is, is Natalie dealing with here? And why does she have these, again, I, I'm not sure it's fully related. This is where I'm really stepping out of, you know, I, I, I cannot pretend to understand the, the sexual assault, but I, I do want to say, you know, it seems like some of these things that she was dealing with, with split realities and, and mm-hmm. retreating from the world, She'd been going through those for years. I don't know if that means that there's been, you know, the brutality of her father has ever been similar, but this way of hers of of testing the reality of her own physical existence in this world from the very first awareness of herself as a physical being, not just as a mental thing there. and, And then these suicidal thoughts is almost a way of asserting that it's not there or that her death is not I don't know. There's some some reason that she's trying to test the reality of her own existence. Um, the, I'm, I'm sure that the sexual assault is part of that because she tries to ignore it out of existence. Yeah. She has conversations with herself where she's like, we don't talk about that thing that happened. I mean, it clearly mm-hmm. was was terrifying for her and and something she has not processed or been able to deal with. And no one has, you know, has been able to help her. She doesn't know where to go. And so she doesn't try. She just thinks, well, it happened. I can just pretend it didn't. And mm-hmm. that seems to be her way of doing it. But she can't ignore her own physical presence in this world. And so all of these things are sadly too real. And so there's the, 
I don't know, there's the there's the, uh, the suicidal thoughts, which your father seems to encourage, not because he thinks she's going to commit suicide, but because he thinks, seems to want her to experience that sense of who she is in her own existence in a way that he, I don't know. What, what do you, and maybe, maybe you didn't think about any of that, but I, no, I feel like I, a lot of that's going on. No, I did. And I think your point about the father, potentially there being something there, I hadn't thought about that because that's definitely a possibility. I may have been too simply thinking of it as preceding the sexual assault. She was still doing a lot of imagining. And like you said, she was creating these other voices in her head. I don't, I wouldn't say they were innocent because often the detective was interrogating her about like, you got the impression maybe like her family was dead and maybe she was the one who'd killed them. <laughs> yeah, so it's not like why we were... wonder why we thought that you know, know. in the Shirley Jackson novel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's not like they were completely innocent, but I do feel like after the sexual assault, there's definitely something that shifts pretty dramatically. Yeah. There's a passage I had here where she walks down to the breakfast table the next morning and it's right when she's about to go to college. So it says, Perhaps a gladiator entering the, the arena might notice with some dull interest the sand underfoot, carelessly raked, and still showing little hills and scuff marks which registered the brief passage of previous victims. Natalie, approaching her own breakfast table, observed absently that her napkin, folded by herself at breakfast the day before, was pulled carelessly through the ring. And then it goes on, and then she says, We are a graceless family, she thought again, cringing away from her own worn mind. So... Oh, it's so good. I, I think there, you know, she was never happy, or at least she wasn't happy at the beginning part of the book. But after that happened, there's a weariness and kind of yeah. a, a new look, even though she's trying to deny that it happened, it took a toll, obviously. And I, I think that's the beginning of a shift where when she goes to college, there's some damage that's been done that continues to show up when some of these other visions and some of her relationships at the college with the professor and his wife, you know, it, it plays out, um, which we can talk, talk, talk about that oh. here in a minute. Isn't that weird? We haven't even talked about them. And those girls that go and are, are so aware of how awful they are being to his wife, mm-hmm. who was one of his students a few years before. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, I told you I had that Ruth Franklin biography. Um, it does sound like this is by far her most autobiographical novel. And so it's interesting because it sounds like there were some elements of her husband, of Shirley Jackson's husband, in some of the different characters, including the dad, but also especially that professor. Arthur Langdon. Arthur Langdon. Thank you. Yeah. And then his wife, it sounds like there's a lot of Shirley Jackson in that wife where a lot of, in this case, the students are having an affair with the professor. And it sounds like Shirley Jackson, as the wife of a professor, was very concerned with that. And according to Ruth Franklin... There's no evidence to show that her suspicions were well-founded. Not to say that it wasn't, but in this particular case in the novel, it definitely is true. So, but yeah, I thought that was an interesting little twist of things too, because for a long, for the middle third of the novel, a big part of it is somewhat the peer pressure and the teasing that goes on within college, you know, the initiation rites of almost like a sorority um, where she kind of has to deal with some of that. But so she kind of runs to this, damaged woman who's the wife of the professor and they have an interesting relationship that's not always close. I mean, it kind of moves back and forth, but the fact that she reaches out to somebody so damaged and struggling and in some ways she ends up being kind of, she takes care of this damaged woman for a while. So 
that was interesting, I thought, too. Yeah, yeah, a damaged woman who is also trying to figure out, you know, I thought my, my existence would be quite different from what it is, and mm-hmm. who retreats to drink and to... The, the thing that I think is so amazing, and unfortunately, we, we're we we're running out of bandwidth on our, on our server for our podcast for October. <laughs> so we do have a time limit on our, on our recording today. Uh, but um, I find it interesting that all of these things are kind of slipped into this book, this questioning of reality. Like she has a friend named Tony, which again, yeah. we haven't even talked about her. I know. And I don't think Tony's real. I think Tony, I don't know. It, she could be, but whatever her, however she's portrayed in this book, I don't think that's real. And there's that there's Elizabeth, there's her own father. There's her, her attraction to Arthur Langdon. There's the absolutely inappropriateness of Arthur Langdon, who's starting his own family, um, which will be very similar to, uh, to the Waite family. It sounds like, and there's the sexual assault. There's her own, kind of working through these relationships at school with other girls who are similarly working through these relationships at school. I mean, she's, she, Shirley Jackson is aware of that. And she has um, Natalie questioning, you know, is, is, did so-and-so get up this morning and worry about whether her hair was um, done just right? You know, all of these little things, it fits together somehow into this really mm-hmm. bizarre story in a way that is quite profound, I think, to a young woman growing up and to the the brutality and confusion and disappointment and hope at the same time, you know, like I can strength, be strong and get my way through this. I, I, I loved it. <laughs> I did too. And that, that's, yeah, I did not, like I said, know what to expect. And I know that some people consider it a minor novel of hers and I can kind of understand. I mean, you can tell that it's an early novel in some ways Mm -hmm. because there is some ambiguity that some people might criticize, but to be honest, some of the ambiguity might be what I end up loving most about this novel. And it's made me, I I think about it a lot since I finished it. I, I, I keep mulling it over. Like I said, I keep reading other people's viewpoints about it. Um, yeah, that whole Tony section, I know we don't have much time, but that was just fascinating. She's just dropped in with almost no explanation, and she plays a pretty major role in that last section without any explanation. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I mean, I did do some reading about her, and so based on the Ruth Franklin biography, I think I did come up with an idea of what it actually is, but I don't know if you necessarily want me to even tell you. Um, because yeah, g- Give me one second, though. I do want okay. to hear it. Okay. But, but here's where we first learn about Tony. It's in a letter to her father, of all people. And here's what she says. Speaking of magic, <laughs> there we are. I figure that now I have once mentioned that I would like to meet a girl. Or, sorry. I figure that now I have once mentioned that I would like to meet that girl, Tony. I will certainly meet her soon. I have discovered that all you have to do is notice a thing like that concretely enough to say it. As in a letter like this, for it to happen. I suppose once I meet her, I will be disappointed. There's this, like, I can evoke her into reality again. Mm-hmm. And and then all of a sudden, boom, they meet. And and they talk at times about the sexual assault, that thing that didn't happen, you know, they, they, mm-hmm. they say. And so, yeah, I, that's my thought on her. But I would love to hear uh, what Ruth Franklin has to 
to, yeah. to offer us there because she's no, thought about I'll, this a lot more than I have. <laughs> she has. Yeah. So I'll just read this little passage. It says, the first sign that all is not well with Natalie comes when other girls in her dorm complain that things have gone missing, a dress, money, hmm. jewelry. And Natalie reflects on her own possessions. If she had lost any clothes or jewelry, she would hardly have known it since she had worn the same sweater and skirt for a week. Soon after, she becomes aware of the presence of the girl, Tony, who is another of her mind's projections, although that may not be immediately clear to the reader. Clues throughout that Tony is unreal, including a scene in which Natalie goes to sleep in Tony's bed, but wakes up in her own, are subtle. One night she's awakened. Tony appears naked at her bedside, takes her hand, and leads her to a room filled with all the things that have been stolen, chattering about the little girl who has come to sleep in her bed a scene reminiscent of Jackson's experience being woken by the babbling Emma. So that's a biographical note there. Mm. Um, Natalie runs away in fear, but she cannot resist Tony's pull. Together they play solitaire with tarot cards, old and large and lovely and richly gilt and red. They sleep in the same bed and it goes on and on for a little bit, but Ruth Franklin is pretty explicit in that Tony is definitely a part of her mind that kind of comes out of this. So you know, I think it was hinted at that, but yeah. at that point, I was still so uncertain about what this book was about that I was like wondering if there was a supernatural element, you know, a ghost or, uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't know what to expect. And like I said, that's kind of what I enjoyed about it. It's just not knowing. Yeah. So, yeah. She seems to be the, because Natalie often will say, am I Natalie? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can change my name. That's from the very beginning of the of the book when she's talking to people about the importance of a name and that woman at the party, the adult party who has a different name now that she's older. And it does, does seem like Tony might be Natalie's other name for doing these malicious thefts and such. Uh, the malicious the thefts, the, the fact that she shows up naked with everything else that's been going on. I don't think that's probably, you know, mm-hmm. I think there's, there's something to that as well. Um, yeah, and then there's the whole tarot cards, and, and they go out into the town, and the, that last section, which is almost dreamlike, and mm-hmm. I'd seen some people reference almost like an Alice in Wonderland feeling, which I think is accurate, where she takes her on this little road trip, and she's kind of leading her, and you don't know where they're going, and that whole part just had a very, ooh, really creepy and unsettling feeling to it, but also some of the best writing of the entire book takes place in that last section, just describing the town and some of the landscapes and some of the different people they meet, like the one-armed man. Mm-hmm, the one-armed diner guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, well, sadly, I think, I think we, we need to cut this um, and, and be done done now. But this book, I think has a, a dark heart that we're just still um, orbiting. And I think it's there. I think that there's a lot going on that, is painful to, to think about. And especially as we might extrapolate it to people that we know or people that we, you know, uh, you and I are both raising sons, but, but, you know, just adolescents that we know that might be having issues as well. I think there's a Mm -hmm. lot here. This is a book of concern. It could be, you know, I think sometimes Shirley Jackson seems like the horror writer, but she is in a way, that but she's using all of these tropes and this gothic feel to really examine uh, dark centers of our society and our power struggles and our relationships and what it does to our image of ourselves and i again think she's she is hitting it 
really good with just her second novel. <laughs> so. I know. No, rest assured, Ben, I'm going to go back and read a lot more of her stuff because this really mm-hmm. did blow me away. And yeah, I didn't, I, I keep saying I didn't know what to expect, but I, I really did not. And I, it, it exceeded all my expectations. It's fascinating. Really, really good. Well, and I'll, I'll go and read The Haunting of Hill House. I've tried it a few times, not because I didn't stop because I wasn't enjoying it. Just, you know, one of those things you get washed up with other things, but mm-hmm. here we go. So, all right. Well, Paul, that was fun. I, I appreciate was. your time this morning. I, I, I feel more able to talk about this novel, able to dig deeper. You know, I don't, I don't think that, that I have succeeded in cracking it, no. uh, but I feel more equipped to continue to discover things within it. No, absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Trevor. All right. Well, listeners, have a happy Halloween. We will be back here um, shortly. Uh, don't forget that we have our NYRB Classics uh, giveaway uh, going on that we, we announced in our, in our previous episode. Uh, we'll be drawing on that fairly soon. So with that, we'll see you in November. Hi, everybody. All right. Paul and I, after we hung up, had to come back on just for a second because Paul has a really good question about explicitly what do you think about the ending? <laughs> mm-hmm. And you just said, and this is when I thought we'd just record this, even if we don't put it out quite yet. Maybe it'll be a Patreon bonus or something like that. Because there I don't have bandwidth um, issues. But I think that the ending can sound really like a cop-out. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we even just look at the last last thing? It's just the, she is. She has just about thrown herself from a bridge when someone walks past, and she doesn't know if it's the one-armed man, who I don't even know if the one-armed man is real, um, walks past and kind of calls her down. And she comes down and recognizes these other people living their lives. Because as she passed, she looked into their faces, and they were laughing or talking or walking quietly along. And none of them did more than slide a look past Natalie, who was walking quietly along without interest. There's kind of that relationship to the the little the old like medieval ditty of one is one and um, all alone and ever more so will be mm-hmm. this idea that there's an there's an isolation there and then it says the reassuring bulk of the college building showed ahead of her and she looked fondly up at them and smiled as she had never been before she was now alone and grown up and powerful and not at all afraid. So you said it kind of disappointed you a little bit. I don't know if it disappointed me. I guess, I don't know. It, it did feel like it came out of nowhere a little bit to me, at least on my initial reading. I kind of want to read, I mean, I'm sure I'll read this book again. And knowing the ending, I wonder if it would change it all. But the part before that, where she goes out with Tony and she's in this the spooky woods and just maybe some of it was having that true story of a missing girl thrown into the mix. I just didn't know where it was going to go. And I thought it might go in a dark direction. And then the fact that she came back, you know, and at least seemingly to me, the way I read it was almost kind of like, uh, she's cured or past the problems. Exactly. And it just seemed a little simplistic based on how complex the rest of the book was, but I don't know. I mean, maybe I, do you have any thoughts? Like maybe I read it not wrong, but maybe I had a different view of it than you did. Well, it's hard to trust that she really feels this way or that it's true because we have read passages like this already in this book where she, you know, after the sexual assault, 
where she feels like, oh, I can just move on now. I'm, I am above this. I am okay mm-hmm. to move on. And I don't really believe her. She can't be through her things with her father. She can't be through the things with Arthur Langdon. She can't be through. I mean, she, she seems to have escaped something that was going on with Tony, but that's something I need to dig into more. I don't know. I don't know how that reflected. I don't know what Ruth, Frank, er, Ruth Franklin, I don't know what Shirley Jackson was exactly trying to evoke there um, with Tony and her coming on to Natalie, if they are kind of the same person or whatever. I'm not sure about that, but I, I don't fully trust that this is the answer for her because she hasn't gotten any help. She has not changed any of these relationships She's just going back and she is recognizing she is alone, but she's been singing that song from the beginning too. Mm-hmm. She's recognized that she is um, separate from everybody else. So I take this as part of her fake moving on. Yeah. It's similar to after the sexual assault, similar to the things she has to pretend with, with their father belittling her. I take this as not true. Okay. And no, that's interesting. Problematic t- as she goes back into this world, and 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 I maybe I might not have gotten there had I not thought. Well, I've read Shirley Jackson's stories and a few of her other books. She's not going to let her character off. No, no, for sure. I will read if if you don't mind. I have one more section from that Ruth Franklin because I was kind of looking through it and trying to figure out if she had an interpretation. So it said, many of Hangs a Man's readers then as now are bewildered by the ending and its abrupt shift from a mood of danger to one of serenity. Classicist Jane Ellen Harrison, author of Themis, a book of myth and ritual criticism that was one of Hyman's touchstones, argues that in ancient cultures, the ritual enacting the death and rebirth of a vegetation deity should be understood also as a ritual of initiation into society. Like the gods or her representation, youths die symbolically and are reborn as adults. Um, yeah, that's right on for sure. Yeah, so it's interesting. It's it's an interesting interpretation that there's a little bit of a myth because we talked about how there's some Alice in Wonderland in there and there's some of these other things. A lot of it is a pretty realistic novel, but I do, I mean, I'm not saying, I kind of like your interpretation of it better, to be honest with you, but maybe there's something to that whole idea of going through a trial and coming out of it, you know, not, not a phoenix exactly because that's a little corny, but something like that. It seems too easy, though, because it's what her father wants for her. He wants her to question mm-hmm. and to almost symbolically die and be reborn. I mean, that's something he's pleading. And it, I just can't quite accept that Shirley Jackson was like, yep, the father's right. This yeah. is what she needs. She'll be fine. Because I don't think, sure, you know, if this is somewhat autobiographical in some aspects, I don't think Shirley Jackson would think that that's when my problems ended. You know, I, I don't think this is an epiphany. I think this. she went through something, another breaking, another shattering almost, but not necessarily an epiphany. Mm-hmm. To, to a degree, yes, but not one of these that's going to um, materially alter the course of her life. Um, she may deal with things differently now, but those things are still there, and she is not prepared still, I don't think. So, I don't know. That's, that's I'm going with thought. your interpretation. I like that better. I think <laughs> what bothered me about it was just the opacity of the novel throughout was one of the things that I loved about it. And like I said, mm-hmm. feeling wrong footed, unsure every time you'd start to feel like you got your feet under you, she'd pull the rug out from under you a little bit. And I think for me, that was probably why it seemed so shocking 
at least on the first reading that everything suddenly cleared up. So I, I like that better. Um, yeah, I, and maybe it's because of she's trained just to now expect to be wrong-footed and to have the rug pulled out from under you that I don't trust that she's not doing the same thing there. Mm-hmm. You know, it just seemed... Because I agree, if it is just that, it's too easy. It's mm-hmm. too it's too pat. But anyway, yeah. it, all right. If any readers have ever uh, read this book and have any thoughts on it, we'd love to, to hear yeah, your interpretations sure. too. For sure. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. I'll see if I can yeah. splice these in with the other one. We might have room. If not, maybe, like I say, I'll just upload this on Patreon and let people know they can go there. Yeah. We'll, we'll figure out a way to make sure it's accessible someday to everybody. But that was nice to, to wrap up there. So Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks. Well, we'll see you again. All right. <laughs> see you, Trevor. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com mooks. Until next time, 